0: Even though you knew it was coming, I
1: knew it was coming, but I looked back over and the numbers had already disappeared.
0: (laughs) The thing is, it was such a genuine like. What? (laughs) Oh, right. So, at least the teaching is done in our semesters at this point. What else is on the docket until like you're done, done, done?
1: Well, officially, right now is Dead Week. It only exists at the University of Alabama, as far as I know. It's a week in which we are not allowed to introduce any new material. Or do any testing or quizzing. So, what do you do? I said, fuck it, y'all can have a week to study. I'm not gonna teach since like I can introduce any new material. I used to always get in trouble because I would just keep teaching. I'm like, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do it this week then. I guess it's for review, but I don't really operate that way. My tests are open book, open note online after the pandemic. I just kept them there. And I -hmm. I had done that a bit before the pandemic. So this is not like a big innovation. They're taking their third exam this week. They have all week to start it. Once they start it, they have 75 minutes to complete it. Mm -hmm. And then next week is finals. If they have an A in the class, they don't have to take the final because it's Mm -hmm. comprehensive.
0: Nice. Yeah. So this year, Notre Dame messed up the calendar somehow. Like, they didn't get it right. <laughs> and so I'm a Tuesday-Thursday class person. So I finished last Thursday on the 21st. Monday-Wednesday people are teaching today and tomorrow on a Tuesday because of some weird snafu of the number of Monday-Wednesday days versus Tuesday-Thursday days so everyone is confused and it's really bizarre, but I'm also delighted that I'm done. Uh, I have a mountain of final projects to assess, but you know, hmm. whatever. Oh, look at this, by the way. This is a student's un essay.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: Right? So for folks at home who can't see it, it is a graphite drawing of a human skull connected to a graphite drawing of her interpretation of the last common ancestor with chimpanzees. And the two skulls are like linked, almost melting together like handle yeah, wax.
1: It's, it's like they were both in the fly and they crawled in the machine together. Yeah. Um, if you seen that movie.
0: Like, how awesome is that?
1: That's really awesome. Uh, I'm going have to get into this on essay and on grading. And I have mm-hmm. pieces of it that I, I have always had in my class. Uh-huh. Uh, but I haven't formally gone through the Susan Bloom book and, and adopted and Mark Kissel's work. But I haven't fully integrated that into my own teaching yet.
0: I've got at least two embroidery, but they're hanging out in the hallway now because I've decided I'm going to decorate the anthropology department with all these amazing on essays to promote like, look at the cool shit our students do when we give them mm-hmm. the freedom to do it. Yeah. And so like the hallways are now covered with artwork from my classes and there's going to be more this semester, which is delightful. There's also this really, really cute children's book that one made, How Do You Know You're Human? And it's so good. It's so good. I need to find a way to display that.
1: Obviously, I need to take a little bit more of a concerted approach to this, especially once our... Anthropology's is Elemental Program, which is our public engagement program where we're sending our students out to develop curriculum and then teach in the local elementary schools. This would be a great way for well, them
0: Well, the nice thing curriculum. for you, Chris, is that all of my assignment guidelines are up on my website, or you can just email me.
1: The wonderful thing about our yeah. class is I punt it all to them to find and collect on their own. They, they develop and find other materials and we also have an online repository. That was something Ooh. I was talking to Rob O'Malley about, actually, mm-hmm. um, who has taken over from Brianna Pobiner running the education committee for the AABA about the many, many different websites out there with teaching materials that are widely dispersed and how it's hard to yeah. pull them all together in one place. So No,
0: absolutely. Exercise Fizz, I had them develop educational games Mm. And On the very last day of class, we all played the games and, and one of my groups of students <laughs> developed the Exercise Physiology 2022 Scholarly Game for Scholars.
1: Nice. The <laughs> scholarly Game for Scholars.
0: <laughs> they were so proud of themselves. It was adorable.
1: <laughs> I still use games that were developed by some of my grad students for their activity, like the assignment I gave them mm. to like synthesize this reading and then Bring it in as an experiential activity, preferably a game. I've snagged several of those games that I, I didn't turn around and teach in the elementary school. So.
0: Anyways, our guest today, everybody, oh. is Dr. Heather shattuck And she is a biological anthropologist who works at the intersections of public health, gender theory, and human biology. And she is assistant professor of women and gender studies at the University of Southern Maine. She received her PhD in human evolutionary biology and a secondary degree in studies of women, gender, and sexuality at Harvard University. She uses gender theory to motivate hypothesis-based research examining how our social lives become embodied, Reflected in our hormones, immune function, and other biology, her current projects include utilizing large data sets to recover the effects of gender on aspects of immune function and a community-based research project investigating how gendered experiences influence stress and allostatic load in adolescents. Welcome to the Sausage of Science, Heather. How are you since it's been like a month almost exactly since I last saw you?
2: Uh, Thank you. I think I'm doing pretty well, although it's the end of the term, so things are always hectic as you probably both
1: know. I'm so delighted that I think a month ago, I really, really wanted you two to meet because I knew you you hit it off and I introduced you and now it's like your old friends and I'm like the outsider. So I find that delightful.
2: That's because I saw Kara's talk at the AAPAs and then like kidnapped her. Yeah, it was an amazing
1: talk, wasn't it?
2: It's <laughs> was like, we have to be friends. Uh-huh. Because, yeah.
0: Heart. I heart you, Heather. That makes me <laughs> feel you. really happy. Thank you.
1: Heather, uh, we're really, really happy to have you on the show. Way we always start off is by finding out more about the person that we're talking to, not just because we're curious about you, but because we think it informs the science. And I think the the work that you're doing, in particular, talks about hidden bias. So I think you'll understand why we want to know more about you and how you came to be a, an anthropologist, a professional academic, and choose the line of work that you have chosen, or at least the research program. So if you could. We'd be delighted to hear about you.
2: You know, I have my undergrad students do an assignment called Introduce the Author where they pick an author from the syllabus that we're reading and they just do like a 3 to 5 minute introduction of the author and the goal of the assignment is very similar. It's like to understand these humans because sometimes we think knowledge especially like there's a certain stage of learning I think where we sort of especially for science, we think that science just is like out there in the world waiting to be discovered and we forget that like it's people doing the discovering. And uh I like this assignment for my students because it makes them see the authors that we're reading as humans in their institutional locations. And one time I found out that a scholar that I assign is Richard Pryor, the comedian's daughter through one of these assignments. <laughs> so anyways, I'm not Richard Pryor's daughter. So you guys know that I do a lot of gender and science stuff. And I will say that I was always interested in feminism. I'm the student who worked in the Women and Gender Studies Center for my work study when I was an undergrad. I went to undergrad a little later. I sort of bounced around a lot in my late teens and early 20s. And was actually the university I'm at is the University of Southern Maine. And we have a slightly non-traditional student population. We have a slightly older average age. A lot of our students live off campus. We have a big on-campus population too. But I was one of our off-campus, slightly non-traditional students. So for me, being back at USM is really nice. And I was a kid who was working in restaurants and like painting houses and was like, is this it? (laughs) Um, And uh, sort of seeing the folks that were ahead of me on that route and thinking, I better go back to school. Like this isn't what I want. I actually think that being like a chef can be a really rewarding career. And this is not like a knock against that. And I still love cooking, but I wanted to try something else. So I went back to school and my dad was a house painter. And he was also like a classic popular science anthro buff. So like when Marvin Harris wrote his most recent book a few years ago, my dad buys it. He's just like, a, he's an anthro guy. He's always thinking about human evolution, always sort of up on that stuff. And so it was part of my lingo growing up was thinking about how humans evolved. We were raised atheists. Not that those two things have to go hand in hand, but just for context, it was just always was something that I was interested in. And so when I went back to school, I went for anthro geo, there one degree at the institution that I went to. And then I was still on the side doing stuff like working with the women's center Working with like some social justice groups out in the community, and I thought those two things were pretty separate. Like I thought that there was like my scientific interest and then like my community interest, and I wanted to get some experience doing graduate level work because uh, university doesn't have PhDs, and so I did a year of national student exchange where you can go to any other school in the country basically for the tuition at your home institution, and I picked the University of Oregon. Because I had lived in Eugene briefly before and liked it. And they had a bioanthro program. And I went out there and I started working with Josh Snodgrass and he let me do a bunch of lab work with him. And I spent a year out there and then I stayed another year after I finished and did just a bunch of bioanthro lab work. And at the time, and still Josh, of course, is doing all this work around the time I was running a bunch of shamani samples for like, I can't even remember what we were running. We were doing a bunch of cortisol assays and then a bunch of immune function stuff. And I was fascinated by this idea that our social environments could sort of like now, of course, it's a complete cliche, but at the time I was reading Carol Worthman and Habits of the Heart and like all these things that were like our social environments can get under the skin. And I could just see this connection between my interest in terms of the social world and what I thought were separate interests in terms of human biology. So that's how I ended up doing the science that I do. And then even then I didn't quite recognize like how strongly feminist theory could motivate my inquiry. And I stayed within pretty traditional like stress biology for a while. And then during graduate school, I became familiar with all these 30, 40 year old feminist critiques of our field. And I started taking feminist science studies more seriously. And I ended up doing a secondary field in feminist science studies at Harvard and then That's where I really found my domain (laughs) that I like to hang out in. So abusing like feminist theory and gender theory to more seriously consider how we can understand social factors and how they can influence our biology. So
0: I've got to ask, what does your dad think of this? Like as somebody who loves anthropology and his daughter has a degree in it and teaches it, I'm curious.
2: Yeah. I mean, he loves it. And he and I are often like texting about new books that have come out. I'll get him books for Christmas. It's fun. It's it's fun to share that.
1: A lot of times we have guests on who've been in the University of Michigan. So Kara gets to get excited. But I, I remember talking to you, Heather, about this a few years back that you and I both had that period where we were not in academia. And my father's a bricklayer, so very similar. And I was going a completely different route and sort of was like, huh, what am I going to do with this. So that's really cool to hear. My dad reposts every single episode
2: of the Sausage of Science. So that's wonderful. Yeah. And that my parents are really supportive.
0: (laughs) So one of the areas in which you are bridging the anthropology and the feminist studies and women gender studies is the Gender sci Lab of which you are a part of at Southern Maine. And so maybe you could just tell us what the Gender sci Lab is and what kind of work actually takes place there.
2: Yeah, the lab is actually based at Harvard. And I have to give justice to that, because without Sarah Richardson, it probably wouldn't be possible, at least not in the form that it's in. So the Gender Sci Lab grew out of a decade-long collaboration between myself, Sarah Richardson, and Meredith Righteous, who's a bio aunt at UMass Boston. And when Sarah got tenure, we started out as a reading group. And our reading group was focused on evolutionary biology and feminist theory. And so over time, it evolved into, okay, submit some proposals to host speaker series, to bring in people to talk about sex as a biological variable, sex and gender in the biosciences, etc. We published some papers together, had some different lines of inquiry, brought in other graduate students, and then Sarah got tenure. And when she got tenure at Harvard, she asked for the funding to open a lab. And so we have a dry lab, it's not a wet lab. And it's based out of Harvard, I participate in it from USM, and I have USM students in it as well. And our lab is unique, because we have like a common area of inquiry, which is how to better theorize and operationalize gender and sex within the biosciences or within human biology. But then aside from that we're very interdisciplinary in how we approach the subject so we have philosophers of science historians psychologists biological anthropologists lots of public health people but also folks from just straight up philosophy so we bring all these different modes of inquiry into like the same topic and that makes us really different i think because we can have some people who are very skilled at unpacking how we conceptualize theories within the sciences. And they bring that toolkit from philosophy of science, for instance. And then we have other people who are data wonks, and they are really good at sinking their teeth into massive data sets. And so being able to unite across disciplines like that, but sharing a common set of assumptions that we're working with and a common set of goals in terms of our inquiry, I think it gives us a lot of power that we wouldn't necessarily have if we were working each of us within our traditional modes.
1: I didn't actually realize it was was at harvard so it adds a a layer of complexity that is fascinating so one of the areas for y'all is conceptualizing and operationalizing sex which we know has been essentialized and way over reduced so i wonder how do we understand and know what sex is and, and use the category and how have you guys addressed this and sort of if you could just sort of walk us through a little bit of the process of how your lab actually works like how the sausage is made
2: So I I guess when I say traditional modes, I mean like ways of thinking. Um, And so I find like when I work with Zach a lot, we share like similar assumptions from our field. And I find that It's really different when I work with, for instance, philosophers. I love working with philosophers. I find great joy in watching philosophers take the piss out of each other in a meeting when they're like going at it about something. But I also don't relate to it in a disciplinary way at all, just in terms of how they communicate and think about things. So what we like to do is take a topic and we work really collaboratively in terms of like writing and thinking together, often in like, jam sessions. So we'll have a topic that we're thinking about. For instance, I think our sperm analysis piece is a clear example of this. So here we have a claim that's been made. We sometimes are starting with claims that have been made, although other times we start with like novel data analysis. And so in this particular instance, we're starting with the claim that's been made that there's a decline in Western men's sperm versus other men. I think this is the most highly cited paper in the journal Human Fertility at the time. I might be getting that journal wrong, but I don't think I am. The claim has a lot of spread within online communities and national news because it's sort of like men are in peril, the end of men. It hooks into a lot of rhetoric that's already available in the public space. So... Around even things that you don't immediately associate with it, maybe like media rhetoric around like the feminization of men connecting everything from like soy in the diet to even in like the uglier circles of the Internet, the rise of feminism and immigration or something like this. So we go to work looking at this claim. And those of us who do data analysis, we get the data file from the authors of all the studies that they used, and we sort of recreate this data set. Then those of us who are historians went to work on understanding some of the assumptions operating in the paper. For instance, a main assumption operating in This paper is that places that are Western, which were the US, Europe, and Canada, have experienced environmental change in a way that places that are other, which is the global South, haven't. I mean, that's a huge assumption. And in fact, the global South, as probably we all know, if we stop and think about it for a minute, is actually a huge site of environmental degradation, of the production of a lot of toxic chemicals, etc. So that idea encapsulates an idea of like the West as like changing and polluted and, and then this more pristine like before period represented by the global South. So some of our historians actually get to work sort of detailing the evidence that like, oh, actually, these cities in India where these studies came from, have experienced tremendous environmental pollution. In no way can this be considered like apart from an idea of environmental pollution. Meanwhile, the philosophers are sort of getting to work trying to understand why did the authors find it so natural to break this data into the groups of the West and other? And like, who is in the other groups? And what work does that do? Calling this the other, calling one set the West. How does this feed into existing rhetoric around the West and the global South? And then we ended up there proposing the way that sperm counts are measured. And I'm not gonna get into like the guts of the analyses. We show some things in the analyses that were done That demonstrate that there's different ways to approach variation. And the variation that they're demonstrating in these sperm counts could be viewed through one lens as being the variation present in West and other in which the West is imperiled and has these like, really steep declines from these sperm levels in 1960s. But the sperm levels that of the West today are not that different from the sperm levels of other in 1960. And all of them are like well above the threshold needed to ensure fertility. Like all of these sperm levels that we're talking about are way above any sort of fertility threshold. So the frame that the authors had applied had implicitly assumed that sperm in the West in the 1960s was like a population optimum. And that declines from it represented some sort of a threat while failing to sort of interrogate why they were not concerned that sperm levels in other were low. I don't think anybody was proposing that like reproduction was affected somehow in these other areas during the 1960s and 70s. So we actually proposed a counter hypothesis, which was that within after certain thresholds for fertility in men, sperm could vary in line probably with environmental conditions in ways that were perhaps sometimes related to pathology, but at other times could be related to energy availability or other environmental factors, which is similar to how we know that a lot of human biology works and that there was no reason to fix sperm levels in the West in the 1960s as like a species optimum or to view the fall of those levels over this time period as indicative of like a huge problem. And then the process itself For that, we actually rolled out something that we've been doing called paper in a day, which is a little bit of a madcap approach to writing a paper where we get everybody together in like a physical location. And we've done a lot of pre-thinking and pre-reference finding and analysis, and we might even have our figures and stuff, but then we write the paper in a day. And of course, the draft that comes out of that is atrocious and (laughs) needs a lot of work, but it lets us all be together. And we spend literally like a day together writing the paper. And that is the process that we used for the sperm analysis paper, then we have a media strategy, too. But that's it. That's like an insight into how we work together. It's highly collaborative. And we bring our different like disciplinary skill sets to work together on common questions. That is an awe-inspiring method
0: and approach to this. I really, really love it. And I I wish I could build that up (laughs) in some way on my own. That always is terrifying. But there are a lot of things there I want to talk about. And I think the first one will be the slightly humorous, but also deeply depressing question I had for later on, that I'm sure you are well aware that Tucker Carlson is now promoting men shine lasers at their testicles to prevent a decline in testosterone and then downstream prevent a decline in sperm. (sighs) I cannot sigh deeply enough uh, with this question. But so obviously this idea that sperm counts are declining and testosterone is declining is still super pervasive and people love to latch onto it. And despite the work you and your collaborators do, here we are, 2022, where somebody with a massive platform is telling people to shine lasers at their balls. So Tell me, Heather, just kind of your thoughts in general about this, because it is obviously a hot topic and one that just happened like four days ago.
2: We have talked about this quite a lot on the on the lab Slack channel. So first, personally, I think Tucker Carlson, you know, he's exploiting an audience for his own gain on some level. I don't know what he does or doesn't believe about this stuff, but we know that the rhetoric fits. And, you know, the, the way that we came at the sperm project was actually, we spent a year looking at how white nationalist and far right movements utilize the new science of sex and gender. And because, as we know, there's been like a rise in these movements, or at least in their prominence. And they have a lot of, of course, race and race science based rhetoric that they use, but they also use a lot of sex and gender science. And I was sort of interested in how they were borrowing from evolutionary psychology and a lot of like Reddit threads and stuff like that where they're actually similar to how they're doing with genetic ancestry and the use of it by white nationalists in this like armchair epidemiology type way or armchair statistician type way. They're repurposing a lot of papers from f in a way that supports these like very patriarchal, misogynistic, like traditional views of the family. And so we did this project where we were looking at that We're just sort of curious as to how the scientific evidence around gender and sex is being used by these groups. And the reason that we became so interested in the sperm paper is because it's used pervasively because it fits really well, especially because they divided their population into West and other. It fit really neatly into this idea of like imperiled Western manhood. Like there's these racist replacement theories around like immigration and stuff. I mean, if men's sperm is truly in peril, like we should definitely talk about it and do research about it. But the sperm paper hit a different sort of nerve. Like it hit a cultural nerve that wasn't really about the paper in some ways. It was about this other thing that's happening where people are worried about a certain type of masculinity and the loss of prominence of a certain type of man. And I think Tucker Carlson is hitting that same thing and probably capitalizing on it in some sense.
1: We could go down a serious wormhole on that because there's a long history of that, right? Sociobiology really comes out of Lionel Tiger, men and groups, you know, stuff like that. There's a deeply embedded bias there, which I applaud both of you for doing the kind of work that needs to be done. What, what I find really fascinating about what I just heard, which is you're doing the validation work that so rarely gets done in science to push at the preconceived notions and biases that are implicit In the research that's already out there and not necessarily fetishizing new research which is what most of us do most of the time you're doing the kind of stuff that most of us say i can't do that now because i need to get tenure i need to produce new data and new papers and new science so i get tenure and i'll come back to critiquing that other bad science that's out there later when i get established and frankly that never gets done if we wait for that to happen so Thank you. You're doing what we should all be duly trained to do do new research and also do validation studies. So, you're providing a really elegant model for that. And I wonder if you could toggle over to another study that you critiqued. It came out in Nature last year a finding of sex similarities rather than differences in COVID 19 outcomes. You're the lead author with the co authors you mentioned and several others talking about supposed sex differences in COVID 19 which obviously is hugely important right now. So tell us a little bit about that study, so what you
2: found. That one just came to mind, actually, when you were talking, Chris, because after I published that, I had all these immunologists who wrote me from around the world, like a lot of people in Europe and in the U.S. who were like, thank you so much for doing that we were all talking about that study. We all knew it was garbage, but nobody wanted to take on taking it down because, you know, it's coming out of Yale. They're in the immunology community. It would be professionally risky somehow. And I was really amazed by that. Uh, So I I think a benefit of being in a women and gender studies program is that, of course, feminist science studies has such a rich history of critique. I could do nothing but critique and get tenure. The fact that I'm doing hypothesis-driven work as well is sort of like, And uniting critique with data-driven work is a bonus. And it gives me a lot of freedom that I wouldn't have in other places. The original paper was published in like the early kind of heady days of COVID. It came out rapid review in Nature, and it used a very small sample size of COVID patients at a hospital somewhere in New Haven, I think. I'm talking like 38 total sample size for people that had severe COVID and maybe like in the 80s, including those 38 for people, any diagnosis whatsoever. They measure 117 immune analytes in a bunch of different comparisons. So they end up with over 500 total analyses minimum. And they find in these, unsurprisingly, there's some things that are statistically significant between these tiny samples of men and women. If this was just like a descriptive study, that would be one thing because it's nature, they have to have like a hot take conclusion. And their hot take conclusion is that vaccine and treatment strategies should differ between men and women, which is just bananas for the data that they have. They don't control for comorbidities. Most of their analyses don't consider BMI or age. So our like reanalysis of their data is not, it's not even really a reanalysis. It's like a clarification of their own results. And all it does is show that they're big take-homes in their discussion. They're talking about data that was unadjusted or things that are not actually sex differences. And it's complex to sort of explain verbally, but they're talking about things where, I guess, both groups trend in the same direction compared to unaffected healthcare workers, but only statistical significance was only achieved in one group. And then calling it a sex difference when really technically, like it's the difference in difference that needs to be compared, which is a little bit of a fine point. But if you're really interested, we have a blog explaining it. (laughs) So we published this Matters Arising in Nature. It was a really interesting process to publish it. It turns out that a lot of the problems that we identified with the paper were identified by the reviewers of the paper originally, because when they publish those papers, rapid review, they publish all the reviews for them too. And one of their third reviewer was like, You cannot claim these results as sex difference results. You haven't adjusted for age or BMI, like a lot of the stuff we end up saying in many ways. And the authors just don't respond to those reviews. And the third reviewer actually says in their next review says the authors have not responded. I withdraw. And then Nature puts a fourth reviewer on and publishes the paper. So I think it also is like a commentary on like, why did the authors feel like they needed to... Have such big take homes of different vaccine and treatment strategies. Why, when we think about sex differences, are we willing to accept the type of evidence that we probably wouldn't accept for other differences like I have trouble imagining like a 38% sample of differences of almost any other type of social slash biological factor. And having it published in Nature with like really big grand conclusions drawn from it. And our experience with Nature, with the matters arising, it was interesting to see how many people reached out to us from the immunology community who would also recognize the problems. But for the reasons you're talking about of being busy, everybody's so busy. And then also possibly because they didn't want the repercussions Mm. um, professionally of publishing it had stayed out of it.
0: So one of the things that we've danced around a little bit, because it's it's a big part of what you do and a big part of what you publish on, is just this term, sex differences, but we haven't really gotten to how we define sex and how the ways in which we are defining sex are changing, and that's meeting pushed back by the Tucker Carlson's of the world and whatnot, and then how we actually operationalize it within our own work. And you and Zachary Du Bois have a wonderful paper in AJHB about this. But perhaps you can kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, how do we define sex and then how can we best represent sex and gender in our work while collecting data?
2: Yeah, thank you. I think about this like so much. (laughs) I was reading the comments for something online and somebody said it was, I can't remember what it was in response to. It might've been in response to um, an article that somebody I know wrote around sex in relation to athletes or something. But um, anyways, the comment was like, I know what sex is. I, I learned it when I was 18 in the back of my Ford or something like that, like they knew, they had this like common sense idea of what a sex difference was. And I think on some level, like most of us wouldn't put it like that. But on some level, I think we are all carrying around some sort of like common sense, like back of the envelope idea of sex, that more or less works. And I'm really interested in how we have like, both that and can recognize the complexity of what sex actually is. I view sex on one level as a relatively dichotomous or relative binary based on reproductive factors. And I think that that binary, even there, a binary doesn't really do justice to describe what's happening. But at the same time, there's some things I don't like about brain mosaicism. Brain mosaicism is a theory proposed by Daphna Joel and some other people in which brains are not considered to be sexed as like homogeneously male or female, but rather are like a composition sexed, possibly sexed region, so that any individual could have a mosaic of brain sex. But in brain mosaicism, Daphne is talking about 3G sex, genitals, gonads, genetics. And she talks about how those things are... Fixed, like unless you remove somebody's gonads, they don't change over the course of an individual. Like you know, you don't have ovaries on Tuesday and then testes on Wednesday, and the same is true for genitals, and the same is true for genes. That these things are they're stable within an individual. They lump together. If you tell me that somebody has XX genetics, I can tell you it's not perfect, right? I don't want to get into what percentage of people have variability in uh, sex conditions, but I would say that you can, for almost all people, you can say, if you have XX genetics, you're going to have ovaries and you're going to be born with an external vagina. And there's something about these particular sets of characteristics that is relatively binary. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't consider the variation present within this system. But in that way, there is a dichotomous sex but mostly what we mean by sex is something like totally different than that. And so when we're talking about sex in almost all other circumstances, we're not talking about these characteristics. And so I'm starting to think of sex. I could be like, if you came back to me a year from now, I'd be like, I, re- I completely repudiate everything I'm about to say. I don't know. I'm This is like evolving. But I'm starting to think about like zones in sex like maybe there's another zone where it's like related to pubertal hormones at certain time periods. And then there's like zones related to age. And I think this concept of binary sex, we try to use it all the time. Like it's a static concept that describes people from infants to the elderly. But I actually think the contents of what sex is don't A binary doesn't actually work to describe the biological variation that we see, except in like very limited scenarios. And so I'm trying to think about like what concepts just work for me. Personally, in these other areas that also can make sense of the variation that we see, and then in in practice, I think people are increasingly arguing that if you want to implement sex in your research, you need to ask like, what are you using sex as a proxy for, and does it make sense? Is it possible to drill down? Is sex a stand-in for something that could be gendered, et cetera? And people have written some nice pieces. Springer and Jordan Young wrote a pretty nice piece in 2012 that unpacked a lot of this. Sarah Richardson has a new paper called Sex Contextualism. It's focused more on like the lab biosciences than most of bioanthro is, but it's a nice read around philosophical approach to how to model sex in the actual context that it's being applied in, in a research basis.
1: I just reread for a class that I'm I'm teaching, Bill Leonard and Catherine Hicks' piece on integrating developmental systems theory into human biology, and it sounds like what you're describing is taking a developmental systems theory approach to sex to understand how it's it's actually interacting with culture and development different ways all the way up the life course.
2: I would totally agree, Chris. So Fausto Sterling has been doing this developmental system stuff for early, early childhood, like the first three years of life. And she's got all these fascinating videos from the 1980s. The 80s and 90s, somebody was going into the household of like 30 lower to middle income families in New Jersey or something and spending like one or two hours a week, just recording the way that mothers interact with their infants. And somehow Vasto Sterling has all these videos and it's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of videos. And she and her students have been coding them for things like how far the mother's holding the infant from her body, what sorts of verbal language is being distilled, et cetera. And they're trying to really take a deep Look at what exactly what you're talking about: dynamic systems of how small differences sort of can canalize into different pathways for development.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and just sort of the way even we worded our questions, right? And I think this comes right out of your paper. How does gender influence biology? Which sounds like it wouldn't at all as a cultural construction, but of course we know that the cultural and social constructions. And how we use them then influence our biology a little bit so and so i wonder if you could speak a little bit to that how can the gender concept uh, come back and influence human biology
2: Yeah, that's a good question. And um, that's actually, I think, the project that we're going to be looking at next year in lab. Like we've known that gender can influence biology for a long time. And people like Nancy Krieger fleshed out these like public health models for it, you know, 20 years ago. But in practice, most people sort of acknowledge that it could influence biology theoretically, but then we don't have a lot of ways of operationalizing it. And there's a couple of ways that people are doing it right now. That I'm sort of interested in and that I've been sort of working on a little bit with some colleagues. One of the biggest ways people have thought about gender, and I want to just recognize it, is through like masculinity and femininity scales, things like the BEM. And that is one way of conceptualizing gender. It's got a lot of limitations. Like the BEM has limitations just in, in terms of its contents and who it can apply for and how people do or do not relate to it in terms of their own internal views. And the BEM is, of course, like that really classic, like masculine feminine scale that asks like very stereotypical questions around your preferences. But that's not what gender is, really. You know, like gender is also like structural factors that limit your X, Y, or Z. It's relational, right? It's how other people treat you. So there's a lot of aspects about gender that we haven't captured very well historically, even though we do have some tools that we've tried to develop to capture gender like the BEM. So people are taking different whacks at this. There's a woman named Patricia Holman. She's a sociologist and she started doing modeling how to consider structural levels of sexism. And so she's doing things like distance to abortion providers. She's like integrating a bunch of variables into an index. I don't remember them offhand, but it's stuff like levels of evangelism in the county that you live in, average differences in male-female income, distance to abortion providers, etc. And she's trying to create metrics that capture structural levels of sexism, and then relating them to health. And so far, I think there's a lot of room in this field. Scheibinger, Londa Scheibinger at Stanford has also been involved it recently was with Louise Pilat out of Canada.
1: This sounds amazing, by the way. Levels of fundamentalist Christianity in a region. Oh my God. I'm in the South. That would be amazing as a fact.
2: Yeah. So like, does that have on average an effect on women in that area that isn't present? I mean, I, I too grew up in the South and the Midwest and just the prevalence of like the anti-abortion billboards or the people that assume that you should be married with kids by your late twenties versus people not in the Northeast, you know, in many urban areas of the Northeast, like nobody bats an eye if you're not married with kids in your late twenties versus having that be like a societal expectation. And that work is pretty recent. It's within the last couple of years is when some folks in Soch, and she has some people that she works with that are working on more intersectional approaches too. They've started trying to model like structural factors related to gender. And then simultaneously, there's some people working out at Stanford. It's actually Ioannidis' group too, that are trying to model more like interpersonal and personal level but not necessarily like beliefs for gender things like amount of hours worked in the home caretaking responsibilities things like that and they're interested in how both of these groups are interested in how these things impact people's health and they tend to use really broad strokes measures of health like self-rated health on a scale of one to five chronic disease count etc the sort of like nuanced work around things like bioanthro has done so well with things like for instance racism and race or market integration and very nuanced work around human biology and I, I would like to see more of that work around gender and human biology. And I think we have a lot to offer there compared to the fields that tend to use like broader metrics of health.
0: So Heather, I think we could probably talk to you for days, not just, you know, all day, but I think several days on end, I think we could have these conversations. Uh, and we, we like to end interviews on the same question, just like we'd like to start with the same question. And that's learning like... What fun sorts of things do you do? And even if it's reading academic work for fun, that works too. But I know you do other things outside of work.
2: (laughs) I do. I lift and we bonded a little bit over lifting. I'm not the lifter that you are, but I have a passion for it. And then I also have started doing my pandemic hobby, bizarrely, is jujitsu. Because it was like, oh, it's a pandemic. I guess I should grapple with other people and like breathe their sweat. So... (laughs) I started doing jujitsu. I know that you know that, Kara, but otherwise I wouldn't have mentioned it because I feel like, actually, I've been doing it very consistently for a year. So I guess I can start to mention it every once in a while that I do it. I think um, that's
0: totally, you it. should mention it, because it just adds to your badassery.
2: <laughs> it is. It's a very badass hobby.
1: It is a badass hobby. Your research, we didn't even mention the many, many papers you've had out recently. You're a badass researcher. And again... Thank you for being a badass scientist which means also the critique right the critique is an important part of science Mm -hmm. it's nothing personal right this is science it's how it's supposed to be done so if other people are afraid for their reputations fortunately there are people in other disciplines who don't know those people and aren't worried about them getting mad at them because it's important that we do that work. So thank you so much. And thanks for coming on the show. We love talking to you. Thank
2: you, Heather. Uh, Thank you for having me, guys. Um, I love the show and I'm really excited to be on it. Thank you.